Amen. You know, there's nothing wrong with the name Judas. The name Judas means praise. Because it's the Greek form of the name Judah. So if we think of the name Judah in the Old Testament and Judas in the New, it's like thinking of Joshua in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New. Same name. The form that it takes is simply dependent on the language. I've never met a Judas. I've known some Judas and I've known some Judes. Judah actually is a very important name in the Old Testament when you think about it for a moment. So let's do that. You know, Judah comes... In the life of Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, and one of the sons of Jacob is named Judah. He's the fourth born. There's some important things tied up with the name Judah. From the tribe of Judah would come the Messiah and the royal king. We're told that before the first book of the Bible ends. In Genesis 49 verse 10, the scepter of God's coming deliverer is going to be from the tribe of Judah. So Israel had a Judah. And then the people who descended from that son of Jacob, they would become the tribe of Judah, the people from Judah's line. The tribe of Judah would be that from which the Messiah would ultimately come. And yet the history of the Israelites, it's a checkered history, isn't it? If you read long enough into the history of their Old Testament ventures, what you find is that their kingdom divides into two parts. This tragedy that takes place in 930 B.C., The top kingdom, the northern kingdom, retains the name Israel, but the southern kingdom actually calls itself Judah after one of its tribes. And so if someone refers to the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, they're talking about those days of a divided kingdom and the southern kingdom named after its tribe called Judah. But then it wasn't restored. The southern kingdom was destroyed. The Babylonians came against it and in 586 B.C., Judge the kingdom of Judah. Why was Judah judged? Because Judah turned from the Lord. Now all these centuries later, what is Jesus doing in the first century Roman Empire? Well, Jesus is the true Israel. He's gathering a new representation of the the people, if you will, with the number 12. He's gathering disciples. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament had 12 tribes, Jesus gathers 12 disciples in the New. And just like one of the Old Testament tribes was a Judah, one of the New Testament disciples is a Judah too. Same name. He goes by Judas. And the Gospels tell us of the fall of Judah too. The Gospels tell us that this Judas, like the Old Testament tribe, turned from the Lord and was judged. And the life of Judas is a tragedy. When you have the whole of his story before you, that's what it unfolds like. Judas's most wicked deed intersects with the greatest work of Christ. It's on that week of the Passion Week, where his cross is near and the resurrection on the third day that would follow. In fact, everything in Jesus' life led up to what he would do on that week. We could say the same thing about Judas. Everything going on in Judas' life had led him to this moment. There is a mention of the timing. And the context matters because in Luke 22.1, Passover is drawing near. This is the Passover on which Jesus will be crucified. So as it's drawing near, the, the tension that the reader feels is, 
the story of the gospel is reaching its climax. This is where all the teachings, all the geographical movements, all the miracles and wonders, they've all been leading here to this week. And in verse 1, we find the nearness of the Passover described this way. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. In the previous chapter in Luke 21, he spoke of several things at hand or near. And now at the top of chapter 22, he speaks of something else that's near, something else that's drawing to the place at hand. It's that feast. This particular feast in the Hebrew calendar was in the first month of the Israelite year. And it was based on the Exodus event. If you read chapters 12 to 14 in Exodus, they're brought out after the 10th plague falls. They're guided by the Spirit and power of the Lord to the Red Sea. Then the Red Sea waters part and stand like walls of deliverance for the Israelites to cross between. And then those waters crash upon the Egyptian armies that had followed and judges them. So the Israelites left Egypt after a devastating series of plagues. But it's that last plague that helps to inform the name Passover. It tells us in Exodus 12 that the 10th plague would be the cue for the Israelites to leave. And that's because these Israelites know that the 10th plague will be a judgment on the households throughout Egypt. But not on the households of the Israelites if they will cover the doorposts and the top of the doorposts with lamb's blood. The judgment would pass over those homes. Hence the name Passover. This feast is named for that 10th plague where judgment falls and as well judgment passes over different homes. Judgment passed over the blood-covered homes. The Israelites escaped with haste, and they were ready for it. They were dressed ready. They had even eaten a meal that didn't take as long to cook. They they ate unleavened bread. Leaven in the bread would cause it to need to rise and to cook longer. Unleavened bread didn't take long. They could eat it quickly. They could leave quickly. That was the symbolism. Don't delay yourself. Once the tenth plague had fallen, the Israelites fled. They made their exodus. They ended up at the Red Sea, felt trapped. The Lord performed the wonder of the deliverance at the Red Sea, and they crossed. Every month, every Nisan, every first month of the year, they would remember through the Passover feast what God had done. They're told in chapter 12 and chapter 13, this day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast. So they didn't think to themselves, this seemed really significant. Let's all get together and take a vote on when we should do this. They were actually actually told by the Lord, this is to be a memorial for you in all the generations that follow. You will know me as the God who brought you out and brought you through the waters. It would define them as a people. The Exodus event was the Old Testament saving event. And all of that patterned and foreshadowed the new covenant work of Christ when he would bring a new Exodus and cover sinners by his blood. Not the blood of an animal lamb. He would be the lamb. And this Passover draws near. It's the time of that year during the Israelite calendar's first month when these people are traveling from all over Jerusalem to remember this. When the Old Testament event is to be remembered, it wasn't only one day. So there was the day of Passover, but connected right after that was a week-long feast. So you could hear it put together this way. There's the day of Passover and then the feast of unleavened bread. But 
as Old Testament history unfolded, and especially by the time you get to Jesus' earthly ministry in the first century Roman Empire, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, that language is basically synonymous for the day and the feast that would follow for the week after. When, when verse 1 tells us, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, Luke is showing you how interconnected these are. To refer to the one is to imply the whole. Okay, This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the Passover day that's near and the week-long feast that would follow. During these days, Jerusalem would multiply in its inhabitants. People came from all over. And not just in the Promised Land, like making a trip to Jerusalem. Families would do that. They would caravan from many miles away from cities in the northern part of Galilee all the way to Judea and to Jerusalem in particular. Jesus and his disciples are examples of those travelers. People would come from outside the promised land. People who wanted to remember with the faithful Israelites what God had done. Faithful Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. These would make pilgrimages. If you were the Roman army in the empire... It was in your best interest to allow these feasts to continue, but you worried about the sheer numbers. Things could get out of hand quickly. So Rome would always send many more forces and soldiers to help a visible intimidation factor be in everybody's face. Rome is there. They weren't even opposed to crucifying people during these days, which is exactly, of course, what will happen with Jesus. It just needed to be a reminder for people, the might and power of Rome. No one should forget it. Don't come to Jerusalem thinking that all of this other stuff isn't also true. We own the land. We're over the land. We rule over you. And so Rome would send extra soldiers so that peace and order would be maintained. The reason for this, too, was the Israelite hope in a coming Messiah was something that zeal and and, uh, and even crowd uh, messianic hope and zeal could easily lead to getting carried away and proclaiming a future king. Rome wanted people to pay homage and worship to Caesar. Not some rival king, not some competing Messiah. They wanted the Israelites to be kept in check. So with huge crowds, things could easily devolve into mayhem, rioting, especially if revolutionary sensibilities just gushed forth. One of the reasons these sensibilities would be especially powerful, think about Passover's initial context in Exodus. The Israelites are under the thumb of the Egyptians. Flash forward to the days of Jesus, the Israelites are under the thumb of the Romans. In other words, a foreign occupying force that in the Old Testament had to do with Egypt, it's reminiscent in the days of Jesus when Rome is the new Egypt. Here's the big difference though. The Israelites weren't in their own land in Exodus. They're in their own land under the thumb of Rome in the Gospels. So Passover would just re-stir all of those longings to remember what God did and that he would do it again. Passover would point them forward too, not just backward. They wanted the Messiah to come and liberate. Now, while all of this is going on, Passover preparations are going to be underway. Meals are going to be eaten in the many hours that are going to follow. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the week that would come after. 
Other preparations are going on. This isn't a normal Passover. In this Passover, the preparations for the feast also include focused preparations by the religious leaders. And you would think these religious leaders, the most important thing they've got going on is Passover coming up. No, 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 not in this Passover. There is something that for them actually rises to a higher priority than the normal Passover events. They are consumed with how to get rid of Jesus. It keeps them up at night. It's what they talk about informally when they pass each other in the marketplace. It's the main business meeting agenda whenever they gather in a group. They can't stand Jesus. They want him gone. And no matter how important Passover is for the nation, nothing is more important to them right now than killing Jesus. And in verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. They weren't trying to figure out whether, but only how. They weren't trying to figure out whether to put him to death. That was already concluded. That was obvious to them. Of course he must be done away with. Their question is how to put him to death. And the occasion of the Passover coming is in verse 2, the reason they feared the people. So many people promoted, gathered around, And follow Jesus. Whatever they do to get rid of him must be done so carefully. So the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. But uh, chief priests and scribes doesn't necessarily jump out to us in uh, the political and social associations that it would have to the initial readers. We need to remember a couple things. Chief priests mainly came from a group called the Sadducees. And scribes mainly came from a group or were associated closely with the Pharisees. And those were religious groups in the first century who did not enjoy one another. They didn't invite each other to each other's parties. They were frustrated with each other with certain political and theological commitments. But they are brought together by a common enemy. The enemy's name is Jesus. So these unlikely groups, the chief priests and the scribes, they're coming together with a desire that they have in common, seeking to put Jesus to death. We're told in Matthew 26, the leadership is gathering here in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Luke doesn't tell us the location here, so Matthew can help us from Matthew 26 and in verses 3 and 4. They gather the courtyard of Caiaphas to think about how they can secretly seize Jesus and kill him. So lots of preparations are going on, but for them, as important as Passover is, Jesus is the all-consuming nuisance in their mind. And there's no doubt he'll be in Jerusalem. And there's no doubt he's already been in the temple. There's no doubt he'll continue to gather followers. Some of these very religious leaders might have already been at the temple to hear him teach and ask him some questions. He's already there. The divisiveness in Jesus' ministry was something prophesied earlier in Luke's gospel. We're not surprised at instances of fulfillment. In Luke 2.34, Simeon held the newborn Jesus and told Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. 
Mary was learning at the newborn baby Jesus' entrance into the temple from this man, Simeon, a prophet. Simeon was telling her, Jesus, this coming, this Savior who has come, this son of yours, he will divide people. Their hearts will not be united for him. Many will oppose him. I find it interesting in verse 2 that the scribes are seeking how to put him to death. Seeking is really important as a verb in action in Luke's gospel. There's a lot of seeking happening. People seek Jesus in Luke's gospel. The verb occurs when people are seeking miracles. Or seeking God. Or seeking the kingdom. All of these uh, examples of seeking are in Luke's gospel. Including some parables. Where there are characters who are seeking something that was lost. In chapter 19.10 Jesus says of himself. The son of man came to seek. And to save the lost. There's a lot of seeking going on. But I tell you, any of the positive examples are held over against this negative one in Luke 22.2. What are they seeking? Are they seeking a miracle? The kingdom? They're seeking how they might destroy him. We're told in Luke 19.47, the chief priests and scribes and principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Even earlier, that desire has been given. In Luke 20, verse 19, the scribes and priests were seeking to lay hands on him at that very hour. The seeking from the religious leaders is not the kind of seeking you would hope for. They're not seeking the kingdom. They're not trying to follow Christ. They know what they want. They're just not sure how to accomplish it. In fact, the people at large hold Jesus in such high esteem that if they tried to do something publicly and it went wrong, the backlash would be fierce. And not just from the crowds, if it caused any kinds of rioting or difficulties among mobs, then the very Roman presence would come to squelch the uh, divisive activity and violence that could be sparked. That would mean something bad as well. Luke chapter 9 Verse 22 gives us Jesus' words, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus has already told us what Luke is now announcing a fulfillment of. He is being rejected by the chief priests and the scribes. There is no indication of anything except rejection of Jesus in Luke 22.2. They're seeking how to put Him to death. That's the end result of their rejection. It started inwardly and they needed outwardly demonstrated with his death. They want to put him to death. Now they can't do so as a religious body. They can't meet with the court, the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin and accomplish a death penalty. They can whine about it. They can wish he were dead. But because they're an occupied people, they need the Romans to do it. And they need this all to be done in a way that won't provoke all the people who support Jesus. Because they are many. Well, then comes verse 3. Verse 3 tells us what I think is one of the most disturbing statements in the Bible. Look at this language. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. This statement is disturbing for at least two reasons. Because the Gospels do report demonic possession. You don't just read elsewhere of Satan entering someone. You do read that here. 
Jesus had earlier rebuked the devil at the temptation scene in Luke 4. And the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, tell us the same. And we do see Jesus encountering demonically possessed people. And he drives out the demons and rebukes them with the power and authority that he has. As the one truly man and truly God. But here we read this, a very disturbing statement that then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. And then the second reason this is a disturbing statement, this is not just anybody in Jesus' life. Judas is is called Iscariot of the number of the twelve. All those details identify him as like, is it that Judas? The one of the disciples? That, That Judas, yes. It's not like the Pharisees put up a wanted ad and said, you know, we're looking for someone who might be willing to turn. You know, this wasn't Judas saying, I saw what you'd been advertising. This is no random person off the street. Jesus, Judas here is Jesus's disciple among the twelve. And it's Judas called Iscariot of the twelve whom Satan enters. We have to see the connection between verse 3 and what we've just looked at in verses 1 and 2. The religious leaders want Jesus gone and they don't know how they're going to do it. Verse 3 tells us how it's going to happen. In other words, the uncertainty of the religious leaders, we need a plan, we don't have a plan how. Dark forces are at work behind the scenes to ensure that what the religious leaders want will meet and intersect with the how. Judas is the how. Satan's influence is the how. The malevolence of the evil one is emphasized. He targets Judas. This will no doubt increase the pain and discouragement of the betrayal that his disciples will bear witness to. And that Jesus himself in his heart will experience. Judas acts. We should understand Satan entering into Judas as to mean Satan is, in, uh, is certainly instigating and offering an influence in the life of Judas. What I wouldn't want us to conclude, though, is that Judas is not doing what Judas wants. In fact, before this is told to us, there are other remarks in the Gospels, like in John chapter 12, where we're told that Judas was the treasurer among the disciples and helped himself often to the money bag. We are concerned in reading the Gospels before we get to this point. I think Pastor Alistair Begg and others who have preached on passages like this one are correct when they say Judas in his heart has not been a follower of Christ and is actually one who has opened him up, himself up to the influence and work of the evil one. And what we see here is a climax of openness to evil that's been true of Judas to this point. This is not to say Judas would have himself been surprised. I've been following Christ, living for him, looking unto his glory alone, and then this happened. No, that is not the way this worked. Rather, the Gospels indicate that Judas here has become a tool of the evil one because Judas has not been a follower of Christ, but a doer of wickedness already. He has been doing the will of the evil one. And here, Satan enters into Judas to help us see that not only is this the action of Judas against the Christ, but it's satanically inspired as well. Whenever Judas's name is mentioned in the list of disciples, we're reminded about what he was going to do. 
There are three places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where lists of the twelve are given. Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6. Each of these cases, Judas' name is last. And in each of the cases, Judas' name is followed by a little phrase telling us something he would do. Here's what we're told in Matthew 10.4. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Mark 3.19. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Luke 6.16. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Those are all early in the Gospels. Matthew 10, you had another 18 chapters. Mark 3, another 13 chapters. Luke 6, another, what is that, 18 chapters to go. These are early in the gospel stories, and the reader is given a little hint in the name of what to expect from this man. Luke hasn't even mentioned Judas by name in his gospel since the list in Luke 6. He's mentioned there and then not mentioned between Luke 6.16 and 22 verse 3. He's just been among the twelve, going where they go, but also seeing what they've seen and hearing what they've heard. Judas Iscariot who became a traitor, and at last Luke 22.3 tells us why. Satan has gained an even stronger hold in Judas' life. And Judas has been open to it. He is not someone whose heart loves and follows Christ. Verses 4 and 5 give us the financial agreement to betray Jesus. It tells us in verse 4, Judas went away. And that, that, that movement there, yes, he's got to move geographically to wherever they are. But listen, friends, that is also communicating a spiritual standing with Judas and the disciples. He's not really one of them. He went away, but in his heart, he went away a long time ago. That's what I'm trying to say. Judas went away. There's Jesus with his disciples. What are they doing? Where did Judas depart from? Well, Jesus may have still been in the temple teaching. This may have occurred on Wednesday of Passion Week, most likely. And we're told at the end of Luke 21, he kept going to the temple day by day. So where Jesus is and where his disciples are, you don't find Judas there. He left. He went away. Or maybe it's in the late evening when they would go out to the Mount of Olives east of the temple when Jesus was finished teaching. And like many others who didn't live in Jerusalem, they'd stay outside the city. And so while they are fellowshipping and eating together in the evenings, Judas went away. And he went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers. So he left those who are following Jesus to meet with those who are enemies of Jesus because Judas' heart belongs in the latter category. It just doesn't look like it so much yet. He went to confer with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Oh, don't miss the how. Because in verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes are trying to figure out how. And Judas comes in verse 4 to talk about how. And so it's like a made-to-order moment. They've had these desires to figure it out. And in comes Judas. We know in Matthew 26, they're in the palace of the high priest. There's a knock at the door. Who's there? Judas, called Iscariot. You see, the Pharisees have been following Jesus and his disciples, keeping tabs on them. They know them enough to where when Peter flees and then follows Jesus after the arrest, some of the people recognize Peter as having been among the twelve. These are not at this point unknowns to everyone, especially among the religious leaders. They would concern themselves with faces and names. 
Judas Iscariot, you mean one of the twelve, one of the disciples? What is it that you want? And so he goes to confer with them and this insidious meeting begins and he begins to talk with these groups um, as well as the officers about how he might betray him to them. You see, these officers were allowed by the Romans to police the temple area. It's like a security force for these Jewish leaders. And it's among these officers that some will go to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. So all of those players in the plot are in on what Judas is talking about here, how he might betray him to them. Judas Iscariot. It tells us in Mark 14 verse 10 that Judas went to the leadership in order to betray Jesus. This was the desire. It didn't come up afterward. Hey Judas, while we're here, let me tell you something we've been trying to figure out. Judas came with the desire and it's just that his desire met theirs in this moment Luke tells us Jesus will be betrayed and the language of betrayal appears here in verse 4 but elsewhere too in verse 6 of our passage he sought an opportunity to betray him in verse 21 Jesus said the hand of him who betrays me is with me at this table the table of the last supper which we'll consider next week In verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. And then the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayal language is used again. Judas, Jesus says, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus will experience a betrayal from one who is among the most intimate of the fellowship of the disciples. He had warned his disciples close friends would betray them. In Luke 21, 16, he told his disciples to prepare for it. Not only are people going to turn them over to synagogues and they have to stand before kings and governors and give an account. He said to his disciples, you're going to be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they'll put you to death. And Jesus himself would not be exempt. He would also be betrayed by one of those that would have been counted as friends among the twelve. One of his own disciples. Think of it. Judas listened to the teachings of Jesus. Judas listens to the Sermon on the Mount. Judas is present for miracles. He carries loaves and fish to the thousands when they're multiplied to feed them. He's in the boat when the storm stops and the waves settle. He's in the same boat in another story when Jesus is walking upon the water. Judas is there when people come back from the dead. Judas is there when lepers are cleansed. Judas was there for it all. And that's one of the most heartbreaking aspects of it, isn't it? And you wonder, why then? What would motivate Judas, given everything that he's heard and given everything that he saw? And people have suggested reasons. One of the most likely is his greed and love for money. That's at least something the text can give us some clues, not only because of the consent and agreement with 30 pieces of silver, so money right there is involved, but even in John 12, we're told Judas had helped himself from the treasury bag, so surely that was part of it. But Judas, given how angry these leaders were, he probably could have gotten even more. Maybe other things had motivated Judas as well. Some people have said not to replace the greed option, but in addition to it, perhaps Judas was jealous of the disciples. 
Perhaps he was disillusioned at Jesus' own ministry because at this point it looks like the Romans are coming against Jesus and Jesus has said they're going to kill me. And Judas may be thinking to himself, well, I'm, this isn't leading anywhere triumphant. Not from the looks of it. It looks like not only are they going to come for Jesus, they're going to come for all of us. I might as well get ahead of it. I might as well get with the religious leaders. I might as well be the one who betrays them over. That way when it all comes down, it won't come down on me. So some people have said Judas has a strong sense of self-preservation that could be operating too. I think all of that is very plausible and likely. It tells us in verse 5, And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And they were glad. It tells us here they rejoiced. That's what the word is. They rejoiced. Oh, there's some rejoicing in Luke's gospel too. Let me tell you a few spots. People rejoice at the birth of Jesus. There's rejoicing at the miracles of Jesus. There's rejoicing when Jesus shares hospitality with sinners. There's teachings of Jesus that say rejoicing and joy are for your future as well in the people of God. We are never told in Luke's gospel that the religious leaders were rejoicing. Not until now. That's so unsettling because there was so much rejoicing from these occasions that I just highlighted. But never among the rejoicers are the religious leaders they're joining in. Instead, it is here they are glad. It's here they rejoice. They're not seeking what they ought to seek. And they're not rejoicing at what they ought to rejoice in. They're seeking to restore, destroy Jesus. And they're rejoicing at his betrayer. They are glad. They came in angry at that meeting, frustrated and distressed. They left leaping with smiles on their faces because now they think they have Him. They're not rejoicing that the sick are healed or that the Gentiles are trusting in Jesus or that the lost are saved or that sinners are forgiven of sin. None of that brings them joy. This is what brings them joy. And the joy is understandable given the hardness of their hearts and how desensitized they are in their minds. Betrayal by an insider? That seems pretty private. If they needed something done apart from the crowd, Judas is the guy to make it happen. Because he knows the itinerary. He knows all the spots. He knows when and where. He's in the inner core. And so if they needed to do something in the absence of a crowd, in, walk, there, answer, through the door, the courtyard of the high priest. This is it. They must have been so glad indeed. Judas is the one that brings up money. We're told this in Matthew's gospel. So we're helped here again by Matthew's account. In Matthew 26, 15, Judas asked them, we're told, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? So they didn't ask him that. He asked them that. He came with that question on his mind, thinking it over in the hours and days beforehand. How am I going to ask it? What am I going to say? What am I going to be willing to do? And he says in Matthew 26, 15, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? We know that according to Matthew 26, 30 pieces of silver is offered. 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal of God in Zechariah 11 is for pieces of silver, just like the story of Joseph. We're reminded here of wicked people gathering together and agreeing to do something, some kind of cost or price, putting a valuation on someone. 
According to the book of Exodus, we learn in Exodus 21 verse 32 that 30 pieces of silver is the life of a slave. The valuation of Jesus then has been set. The bringing up of money is unsettling for people who have been tracking with Luke's gospel carefully. Luke cares a lot about people not prioritizing earthly treasure in their hearts. It's been a big deal in Luke 16, especially. In Luke 16, we were told of people who were not managing well and faithfully stewarding the resources of this world so what was before them in heaven and the new creation would be denied them. We're told in Luke 16, 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. So if Judas, who loves money, is going to come to the Pharisees, listen, they all love the same thing. It's just not Jesus. They love money and Judas loves money. So let's talk about what we love and agree on a price. We're told in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. I wonder how that sounded when Jesus said it in Judas's hearing. No servant can serve two masters. Judas has taken that in. And then he says... For he'll either hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And man, I bet this went all over Judas. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Because here's someone who in his heart, that's exactly what he was doing. That's exactly what he was doing. Loving money and whatever else. Jesus says in Luke 16.10, the one who's faithful in very little will be faithful in much. One who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Wonder how that sounded to Judas. If his conscience was operating, he would realize even with stewarding the money bag of the disciples, he had been dishonest with it. Dishonest in little and dishonest in much. These, these must have felt like harpoons to the heart of Judas. And now all of these chapters later in Luke 22, here we have a lover of money doing what Paul says can happen for those who love money. It tells us in 1 Timothy 6, And in verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds, Paul, you say, that's pretty general. Can you give us some examples? Paul might say, well, think of Judas. How about betraying the Son of God? All kinds of evil, yes. Evil in addition to that, but also including that. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Friends, it is. It's true. And just look at the story of Judas and what people are willing to do for money. Because their heart values that. Earthly treasure for them is everything. They want to get what they can, how they can, as quick as they can, and keep it as long as they can, because they love it. It's what they live for. And Jesus says, you can't serve God with a heart like that. So before before you look at what Judas did, you need to recognize it came from a heart that sinners might be able to look within themselves and see in the heart of Judas and say, okay, we might not be so distant from each other. There might be some temptations and some vulnerabilities there. And I can't imagine me ever going and selling the Son of God. But there's all sorts of evil done because of love of money. Love of things that are not Christ. Oh, Judas here is not just a story that we need to learn happened, but a warning for the reader. That here's someone who looked like a disciple. And he was, he was where they would gather. But he was not in his heart one who loved Christ. So here we are, right? Here we are, 7012 Shipley Lane. We're all gathered here. But Judas is a warning to us. 
So that when we gather, we wouldn't think about it like many might conclude about Judas. Well, look, he's among them, so he must be of them. We must be careful not to conclude things spiritually because we are simply outwardly there. Without attending to the state of our heart and ask, what am I really seeking? What am I really desiring? Because there's the seeking of the kingdom. And then there's the kind of seeking of those religious leaders who just want to destroy Jesus. He's just in their way. He's in the way of what they really want, which is power and other things. So the agreement we learn in Matthew 26, verse 15 and 16, is 30 pieces of silver. Judas had asked them, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And it tells us in verse 6, so he consented, which means the agreement was made. And he sought an opportunity. So here's more seeking that's happening. He's seeking an opportunity to betray him in league with those who are seeking an opportunity to destroy him. Judas is being used of the evil one. And yet, it does not diminish or contradict Judas's own responsibility. Judas is doing what Judas wants. Asking for what he wants. Arranging what's in keeping with his heart. Judas would have told them that he's willing to turn over Christ in a way that is secret. That's what they're wanting anyway. That would be in the best interest of Judas, in the best interest of the religious leaders. And by the time you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, you see how it's all going to go down. It's in a more private, secluded, and darkened area. And there is the best spot among all the options in the city. And it is there that he will be betrayed. Why are they there? Because Judas knows where they go. East of the temple in the evenings, he knows where they gather. He knows where they lodge. He knows where Jesus teaches. So when the betrayal happens, Judas knows exactly where to take them. These religious leaders have struck gold in their view, right? I mean, this is it. He knows what he needs to know to make it happen. Why would Judas need to betray Jesus away from the crowd? To minimize the fallout, minimize the chances of an uprising, and to minimize anything coming down upon his own head. He's thinking of himself. In Luke 4, Satan had tempted Jesus and Jesus prevailed. We're told that Satan then, in Luke 4.13, left and departed until an opportune time. What's interesting in our passage today, then in verse 6, is Judas is seeking an opportune time. Judas, who is he like? Judas is like the evil one. Satan is seeking an opportune time, and so is Judas, and for the same reason. To destroy him. To bring him down through betrayal. We learn from John's gospel, along with these others, that in the end, Judas never really believed in Jesus. We're not looking at a man who was once saved. We're looking at a man who was always lost. And whose heart was captive and consumed with the things that did not honor Christ or fit the kingdom of Christ. 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is worth more than that. That's for sure. Jesus is more worthy than anything you can imagine. There's no price you could put on Jesus. He's the supreme treasure. He's not someone to bargain for. When we understand who he is and what he will do, we come before him with open hands of faith and adoration. And we say, you are the son of man seeking the lost and I am the lost and you are the seeker and I need you. He's the supreme treasure and the highest gift. He's not one who could be bought. He himself gave his life as a ransom for the undeserving. 
Jesus is the lasting joy for sinners. He's the everlasting life for sinners. He is the supreme treasure. And Judas couldn't see it because he loved money. What would it profit a man, Jesus says? And I wonder what Judas thought of this question. What would it profit a man if he gained 30 pieces of silver and lost his soul? Jesus is the lasting joy in life for sinners. So as a songwriter once put it, take the world, but give me Jesus. Let's stand and pray.